0: Man, that was good singing, great singing tonight. If you open your Bibles to Micah chapter 6, please. We're going to be looking at the first five verses in probably one of the greatest chapters, if not the greatest chapter in the book of Micah. But we will look at the first five verses tonight. Hear now what the Lord is saying. Arise, plead your case. This is legal language here. Plead your case. Before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Listen, you mountains, to the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth, because the Lord has a case against his people, even with Israel, he will dispute. My people, what have I done to you, and how have I wearied you? Answer me. Indeed, I brought you up from the land of Egypt, and ransomed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. My people, remember now what Balak king of Moab counseled, and what Balaam son of Beor answered him, and from Shittim to Gilgal, so that you might know the righteous acts of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your inspired scriptures and your people who are here tonight to partake of them. We pray that you would just bless our time, Lord, take notice of people that love you and love your word, and do wonderful things for them, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I think all of us have known people who at one time seemed to be on fire for God. They seem to be on fire for the Word of God, but they aren't that way anymore. Either the flesh got them, or the world got them, or the devil got them. Some have just drifted off. They aren't serious anymore about pursuing the Word of God. They're not pursuing a spirituality that pleases God. And There are some people we know that are just flat out pursuing that which is sinful and fleshly. That isn't new to our time. When Jesus Christ addressed the seven churches of Revelation, the first church on the list was the church of Ephesus. Ephesus was a church that had the greatest Bible teachers that one city ever had. It had at least two apostles there. You have Paul and John, they taught there. Timothy, he taught there. Aquila, Priscilla, and Apollos taught there. And Mary, the mother of Jesus, lived there. Now you would think that if there would be a church that would be sold out to God forever and sold out to truth. It would be Ephesus. But when the Lord Jesus addressed the church, he said, you need to repent because you've left your first love. In fact, if you visit Ephesus today, there's no vibrant church there. It's just a bunch of ruins. This is not a problem for one or two churches. We're living at a time when not too many Religious places are really interested in carefully studying the scriptures, and what's really tragic is there doesn't seem too many individuals who are really serious about rightly dividing God's word so they can rightly apply it. That's the way it was in Micah's day. That's the way it was with the entire nation Israel. Not too many were interested in hearing God's word. So God raised up Micah to go and address that problem. He started telling the people, look, you need to listen to the word of God. You need to listen to the word of God now. You need to get serious about this. What they needed to hear was that God is not happy with what you're doing. You're following leadership that's leading you right into disaster political and religious leaders are leading you and you're following these guys into the areas you know are wrong. And he says, I've got a very serious case against you. So when Micah opens up the sixth chapter, what he says is God has a legal case against his own people because in spite of all the wonderful things that he's done for his people, in spite of all of the gracious things and good things that he's given to his people, they continue to rebel against him and his word. Now, there's an important question that each one of us needs to ask ourselves when we think about this privately, and that is, if God were to speak to us as he did to Micah, would he say to us, I have a case against you. I have a case against you. You are not faithful to me in view of all I've done for you. Would he be able to say that about us because that's what he does say about Israel? And there are four parts to this particular study that we want to look at, this series of verses. And the first one, and God calls Israel into his courtroom to plead their case. Verse 1, hear now what the Lord is saying, arise, plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. Listen, you mountains, to the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth, because the Lord has a case against his people, even with Israel he will dispute. Now, no one in his right mind wants to be hauled into a court. That's intimidating if you get a subpoena. It's intimidating to just walk into a court. And when you're about to face a judge, all you can hope for is the sentence and the decision will be a good one that's based on truth and facts. Well, this judgment is going to be based on truth and facts. Verse 1 opens with here now, which is plural. So this is a general address that is being given to the nation Israel. He's calling the whole nation into court together. And the main problem is... What he says when he opens the text, here now, that's exactly the problem. They didn't want to hear. They didn't want to know the truth. They did not want to respond to the truth. So when he says to them, arise and plead your case, now he uses a singular pronoun, which is aiming this at singular individuals in the nation Israel. So God says there is a national application to be made from this, in that generally speaking, national Israel doesn't want to hear me, and there's an individual application because they don't want to hear me either. Now, what Micah calls Israel to do is hear what the Lord's saying. He's not interested in giving them a talk about religion. He's not interested in giving them a talk about contemporary philosophies of the day, the latest fads. What he says is you need to hear is what the Lord's saying. That's what you need to listen to, what the Lord is saying. That's what all people need to hear. They need to hear the word of God. And you cannot help but notice the legal language that's given in here by God. Plead your case in verse 1. This is an indictment that he says in verse 2. And then he says, the Lord is against his people. So you're talking here about legal courtroom language. Now God calls the people to defend themselves in view of the case he has against them. And what a case he has against them. He's on the verge of bringing serious judgment, chastisement on them. And he calls them to give a defense of what they're doing. And what's interesting is the jury, the jury that he calls to give testimony of this, the spectators of this courtroom are not people, but mountains and hills. These mountains and hills speak of the glory and grandeur of God. Those mountains and hills can testify of all the blessings that God has given that nation since creation. Those mountains and hills can testify of all of the sins that God's people have committed in that land. Ever since God led them into that land, God could call those mountains to give testimony of what you're doing. It's kind of like your house. Your house could testify of the blessings that God has giving you in your house, but that same house could also testify of the sins that are committed against God in the house. So God could say, plead your case. So let your house be a witness. Or how about your computer? We have someone in this church who was telling me that they used to be in law enforcement in an area where they would track down people that were sexual predators and child molesters. He said, we can go into any computer. We can open that computer up and we can see exactly what's there. We can see exactly what that person is looking at. And I hope you've taken that challenge that we gave you last October. We're coming up on it. Set no unclean thing before your eyes. I'm telling you, if you've taken that challenge and you're on track with that, you got to feel pretty good. Don't get proud about that. But you're on the home stretch of being one year of setting no unclean thing before your eyes. But if you haven't done that, if you failed, then pick it up again and get going. Because what would happen here with the nation Israel is they just didn't do anything about it. They just kept right on doing what they were doing. And when God's people literally looked at those mountains, they realized, you know, the judge that we're about to face is all powerful. I mean, he's the creator of those mountains. He's the one who literally physically displayed himself to Israel in a mountain. So God's courtroom is the outdoors which he made. It's not a courtroom made by the hands of men. It's a courtroom made by things that God has made that can testify of the righteous things that he's done and testify of the things that he's done and the people have done. And those mountains and those hills could testify what these people doing was wrong and evil because they were setting up their idols and setting up their immoral things that they were doing right in those mountains, right in those hills. And quite honestly, there were evidences of idolatry and immorality in those hills and mountains because that's where they set them, that's where they build them. So there was a sense where God could say, look at the mountains, look at the hills. I'll call them to be a witness against you. You know, there are a lot of people in this area that love to go see Lake Michigan. It is awe-inspiring. You drive over and you look at Lake Michigan. What very few people realize is that the one who made Lake Michigan, the one who put that lake there, will actually call us to accountability one day. So the next time you see something in the outdoors that takes your breath away, just whisper to yourself, I'll face the God that gave me breath, and I'm going to give an account to him. In fact, verse 2 God calls the mountains and the earth to listen to the indictment that he has against his own people. He has a legal case against Israel. This is a legal charge that God has against his own people. And the mountains and hills were the very places that a lot of this evil had been done. People thought they were getting away with this. Nobody saw, nobody knew, nobody's watching. We're in the mountains, we're in the hills, nobody sees this. And God says, I've got the case against you. H.A. Ironside said, God will always be in controversy with those who walk in disobedience. If you choose, as a child of God, to walk in disobedience, that's your right. You can make that choice. You don't have to ever yield to the Spirit of God. You don't have to obey the Word of God. But understand this. If you make the choice to continue to walk away from the will of God and Word of God, you'll have no fellowship with God. You'll have no communion with God. You'll bear no fruit, and you'll get no rewards because you will not submit yourself to the authority of God's word and the truth of the word of God. And that is exactly the problem with Israel. She was not going to submit herself to God's word or to the truth of God. So God says, I'm bringing you this case against you. So that brings us to the second part. He asks his people two direct questions. Verse three, my people, what have I done to you? And how have I wearied you? Answer me. God says, okay, here's what I just would like to ask. Which is just amazing to me that God would even communicate with his people who are in rebellion. I mean, that is just amazing. But he says, I have a question that I'd like to ask you. Tell me just exactly how have I wronged you that has prompted you to go the direction you're going. And you'll notice he addresses his people, my people. These are his people. These were God's people who turned away from God. They turned away from the word of God. If you've ever had a child that's turned away from you and turned away from what you wanted for them, you can relate to this. You try to raise them in the right way. You try to communicate to them the right things. You try to provide for them. You teach them. You care for them. Then they turn their back on you and just walk away. You know the hurt of this. That's what God's going through here. It hurt God, and God said, what have I done to you? He's asking his own people, what exactly have I done that has prompted you to become so rebellious against me? As one commentator said, you talk about condescension. Man, they've rejected God, they've rejected his word, and he still reaches out to even want to talk to these people. Isn't that interesting that God still does that to us? Even though at times we're rebellious against him, we've done things that are quite frankly, just sinful and horrible, he still says, here's my word, I want to talk to you. God says, what have I done that's made you so hostile and hateful to me? What have I done that has caused you to rebel against me and my word? He asked two pointed questions. Number one, what have I done? And number two, how have I wearied you? Now, there were times in King David's life where he asked that question when he went out to fight Goliath, his older brother Eliab, started saying terrible things against David. You know, we know you're out here in your pride, and you're going to fight Goliath because you're a proud guy. David said, what have I done to you? Then when he was being chased by Saul, and he had a meeting with Jonathan, David said to Jonathan, what did I do that got Saul against me? And then when he met Saul, he asked him the same thing, what is it that I did? So God is basically questioning them, what have I done to you? Man, I'm telling you, God could come up with a list of what they've done. I mean, he could take that Old Testament and rattle it off. He could take our life and just rattle it off. Here's your list. Here's the list of what you've done against me. The question I'm asking you is, what have I done against you? And we can't help but wonder if God will ask us the same question at the Bema Seat Judgment when we're called to give an account of ourselves. I mean, could God say to us, "Well, were my instructions so hard? Were my promises to you so difficult to grasp? What is it that I actually did? What did I do? And the answer is, God, you didn't do anything wrong. You're not the problem. You're not the problem. God's people are the problem. And we may assume from these questions that the people were blaming God for the fact that they were tired of life, the life that he was giving them. They apparently were not finding life with God as a just total complete blessing, but just some wearisome drudgery and a great problem. I mean, this to me is just unbelievable because it was their own choices that took them away from the blessings of God. You talk about insanity. I mean, these people were on the path of blessing after blessing after blessing. They took themselves out of that path because they were listening to false religious and political leaders, and they were following them, so they make choices that move them away from the things of the Lord, and then they come back and blame God for it. When you're a parent and you see your child drift, you do ask yourself, what did I ever do to cause that? I had a family in our church, a daughter just went berserk. I mean, this girl went off the radar into sin. And so they got counseling from a secular counselor. And this guy was a good man in our church. He was an elder in our church, and he had gone for a couple of sessions in this. And he said, I'm sitting there, and the counselor goes, well, really, it's not her fault, it's your fault. He goes, I've heard enough of you. I'm not the one making the wrong choices here. She is. It's true. None of us as parents are perfect. That's absolutely right. You try to do the best you can. You try to guide your children in the right ways. They're not perfect. God is perfect. He would have never done anything that would have been wrong. And what God has done to his people has done nothing but good for his people. And what has God ever done that would cause any of us to rebel against him? What has he done to his people that would make us weary of having a relationship with him? Is God so demanding Were his promises no good? Had God abandoned them when they got in trouble? Is that what he's done to us? We get ourselves in trouble, he abandons us. What exactly would prompt someone to turn away from God who has done so much for them? Does God deserve to be treated with so little respect? After God fires the questions, he says, now you answer me. At verse 3, you answer me. What in the world could cause any of God's people to become weary of God? You want to become weary of something, become weary of this world. Become weary of people that are leading this world away from the word of God. Become weary of ourselves. Weary of your own flesh. But what would cause anybody to become weary of God? Was God faithful to you? Has God been faithful to you? Every one of us could ask that question. Has God been faithful to us? But the real question is, have we been faithful to God? Now, these questions can be asked of any nation. We could ask these questions of the United States. What did God ever do to the people of this country to cause them to so hate his precious word? What did God ever do? What did God do to the United States to cause people to say, you know what? We need to take the word of God and prayer out of schools, which was done back in the 1960s. What did God ever do to get people to so hate him that they would actually flaunt and pursue sinful things that he says are an abomination to me? God could say, answer me, answer me, because one day they will answer him. They will give an account to him. God has never done one thing wrong in regard to any human being ever. He has never treated us unjustly. God has been very gracious to people even who've mocked him. God has been very forgiving to his people when they've done every possible thing imaginable, sinful. God has given his word to his people. He's given us life. He's giving us skills. He's given us opportunities and gifts. What has he ever done to cause people to rebel against him? He's not the source of evil. He's not the problem. We are. And it would seem to me if I were God, and it's a good thing I'm not God because I would just be a mess. But God, you would think, would say, now let me give you the list here. I've got against you. He doesn't do that. It's really interesting what he does here. He reminds the people of some of the good things he's done for them in verse 4. I don't even know why he's communicating with them. But in verse 4, he reminds people of some of the good things he's done. Indeed, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and ransomed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, counseled, and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered him, and from Shittim to Gilgal, so that you might know the righteous acts of the Lord? Now, what God does here is significant. When people are acting like some type of emotional irrational group that are in some type of uh, mental frenzy. And I think there's an important principle here. What God does is he recites facts. You see the mind of God working here. He recites facts. He says, let me give you some memories of what you've seen me do. Let me remind you of some of the things that I've done to you. Let me point out some past blessings that I gave to you. And there are three blessings, factual blessings, that he specifically gave to Israel. And he says, we're going to look back on history here. And when you look back on history, you're going to have to see, I'm not the problem. I love what God's doing here. It's just amazing to me. He doesn't say, I've had enough of these people. I'm not even going to talk to them anymore. But he says, let me just remind you some things. First of all, the first blessing, the first fact is, I brought you out of Egypt. He says in verse 4, indeed, I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I like what he says there. I brought you up because you were down. I mean, you were down emotionally there. You were down financially there. You were down in every way, shape, and form spiritually there. And God said, I brought you up. I raised your level way up. It's been calculated that more than a hundred times in various parts of the Old Testament, it's stated that God brought Israel out of Egypt. It was and still is one of the most spectacular deliverances of a nation that's ever been seen anywhere in history. The book of Exodus describes how God did it. What a privilege it was for us to go through that book. It was amazing. It was miraculous. Moses goes into Pharaoh and he says, God wants me to tell you, you let this nation go. You let Israel go. And then God displays his sovereign power through those series of plagues. And you have... A rod becomes a serpent, you have water that's turned to blood, frogs cover the land, you have flies that plague the land, the Egyptian cattle dies, boils plague the Egyptians, hail destroys fields, men and animals, locusts cover the land, darkness covers the land, and the firstborn die. And then, after God does that, he literally parts the Red Sea so the children of Israel may walk right through the middle of the sea. What a deliverance! He said, have you forgotten that? you're alleging that I'm the problem? Have you forgotten that? God said, don't you remember what I brought you out of here? The Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. What amazing grace is that book of Exodus. And God's people were in Egypt. They were being mistreated. They were being killed. He went and got them. He went and got them. He said, what's your case against me here? Secondly, he said, I brought you out of slavery, in verse 4, and I ransomed you from the house of slavery. I think that's interesting, the word ransom or bought is padad in Hebrew, padab, and it's a particular word that actually means that you pay a price for the legal freedom that the necessary price to set the nation free. What Israel doesn't realize is in order for God to have a relationship with this nation, there had to be a payment made to the holiness of God, which they had violated. Somebody has to make that payment because God can't just overlook the sin and the rebellion. And he's basically saying, I came up with a plan to redeem you. I'm the one who came up with a plan that my son would go down there, and I think that he has that in view. My son would go down there, pay the ransom price that would be necessary for you to have a relationship with me. In other words, what God is saying is, I want you to understand I came and got you and I took care of all the legal matters that would be a breach between our relationships so that you could have a wonderful relationship with me. And you and I can make a tremendous application of that because 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19 says, we were redeemed, purchased with the precious blood of the lamb. That's amazing grace. God said, so I come and I get you, you're slaves. I come and I get you and I pay all the necessary price to get you out of that mess, to get you out of there. And as a result of that, what possible reason can you have for defecting from me in my relationship with you? I'll tell you what, this is an important principle, and I think we need to realize this. Do you remember what it was like, what your life was like before Christ? I do. I do. I don't care what I had, and I don't care what I was achieving, what I thought was fun. I don't care. I knew that there was something missing in me. There was something empty in me. And it's good to go down memory lane and realize how God stepped in and filled that void. And that's what he's basically saying Israel needs to do. And then he says, not only did I do that, but I provided leadership for you. In verse 4, I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. God supplied his own chosen leaders. He said, I handpicked these people. I sent them to you. These aren't the phony political, religious leaders you have. I raised up leaders that would point you in the right true ways of God, and he led people through Moses and Aaron and Miriam. And Israel gave a lot of respect to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Moses was God's great leader, teacher, and prophet. Aaron was God's priest, and Miriam was a prophetess, according to Exodus 15. She was the sister of Moses, and she's the girl who watched over him when he was in the bulrushes as a baby. And I understand by Virtue of the fact that God adds her name into this equation is he's saying, I have my hand in all of this stuff. I mean, Miriam was watching Moses when he was in the bulrushes there in the Nile, and then she was the young girl who went and got her mother to become the nursemaid when Moses was discovered. And then God used Miriam all the way along to help him out in his ministry. She apparently did have a gift of prophetess. She apparently was musical because she was, as one writer said, the Fanny Crosby of the Torah. She led people often, or the choir, especially a women's choir and other choir members too, apparently in some type of musical thing. And God says, now, I gave you those leaders. My hand was on this. I'm the one who chose those leaders and gave you those leaders. He said, don't you realize I'm the one who sent them to you? I provided good leadership for you. You didn't want it. And then he says, I want you to remember one other thing how I protected you from your enemies. In verse 5, my people, remember now, my people, remember now what Balak king of Moab counseled and what Balaam son of Beor answered him and from Shittim to Gilgal so that you might know the righteous acts of the Lord. Now, Shittim is the last stop. It's the last place that Israel stopped before they crossed the Jordan going into the promised land. Gilgal was the first place that they stopped when they got into the land. That was the first place they camped. So in between the location of Shittim and Gilgal, you have the Jordan River. God doesn't even bring up the fact I parted the Jordan River so you could get into that land. But he says, I want you to remember I brought you out of Egypt. I brought you to Shittim, and then that was located on the east side of the Jordan. Then I took you on the west side of the Jordan, and I took you to Gilgal. And I want you to remember what happened that comes from Numbers 22 to 24. If you remember Balak, the king of Moab, he didn't like the idea you were coming into the land. He apparently didn't have the guts to fight you because he realized this nation has a powerful God on their side. But he didn't like the idea that you were coming up into the land. So he came up with a plot. He went out and hired a false prophet and gave him money to prophesy against Israel. That's what he wanted them to do. He wanted Balaam to prophesy against Israel. He wanted Balaam to come to Israel as a prophet and curse the people. So he hires them. Just like pastors hired in churches today. Not much has changed. I mean, there are churches that will hire pastors to tell them anything they want to hear, as long as it agrees with them. They don't want them to go there and tell them the truth but they'll hire him just as long as they say things that agree with them. Well, anyway, Balaam, who's non-Jewish, he's hired by this king of Moab, Balak, to prophesy against Israel and curse Israel. And as Balaam is on his way to do that, his donkey talks to him. And his donkey says to him, you don't want to be cursing Israel. So here's the amazing thing. At least four times, Balaam stands up to prophesy against Israel, and God turns his mouth from cursing the blessing. In other words, Balaam intended to stand up and curse Israel, and he stands up there, and when he was going to curse Israel, God changed his mind and mouth, and he couldn't do it. God says, now you remember that, because I did that for you. In other words, I saw to it, that you were watched over. I saw to it that you were protected. Even when there were those that were out there trying to do us was false, you had no idea. You didn't know what they were even doing. I was looking out for you. And he said, the reason why I did those things is so that you would know of my righteous acts. And it's plural. Righteous acts of Jehovah. Righteous acts of the Lord. What are the righteous acts he's just mentioned? Well, I chose Israel. Then I delivered Israel. Then I provided leadership for Israel, and then I overturned powers that didn't like Israel. God says, I always wanted you to know my righteous ways. I always had your welfare in view. I didn't want you pursuing that which was idolatrous, and I didn't want you pursuing that which was immoral. So God says, what in the world did I ever do to you that caused you to turn against me? I think it's time for some people to just do a little retrospect in remembering all the blessings God's given to them in life. Because if you lose sight of that, you can get just as wacky as Israel. God has given us his word, his precious word that reveals to us all of the righteous ways and blessings of the Lord. And even though the vast majority of the people are not going to take it seriously, you be one who does. If you're one of the remnant who takes it seriously, you'll be one of the remnant who'll be blessed of the Lord. You do have the oil of the Holy Spirit in you. Keep him burning until the break of day. You keep him burning by understanding and applying his word. You do that, you'll never face a court scene where God will have to say to you, what in the world did I ever do to you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your precious word. Thank you for these great teachings that are in the scriptures. Lord, I pray that we would stay riveted with laser focus on the word of God and will of God until we have the privilege of leaving here and entering into thy presence. We want to thank you for giving us the scriptures. What a gift. Lord, forgive us for times when we have had the arrogance and the audacity to blame you for anything. What a fool we've been if we've done that. You've been so good to us, Lord. We look back over our lives and see what you've done. We just thank you for grace. In Jesus' name, amen.